Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Why are we the way we are? How should life be lived? When should we start living it that way, and why? Working on God is a book by Winifred Gallagher, a science writer who lives in New York City. Winifred Gallagher asked, what if religion could be something else? when her early learning about Christianity was shaken by her college education. After writing books on how heredity and experience create the individual and how our surroundings shape our thoughts and emotions, she has chosen to work on God. When I spoke with Winifred Gallagher from her home in New York City in March of 1999, I asked her, what is God? Well, I would say uh, that what some people call God, and Buddhists, for example, uh, who belong to a non-theistic religion, might call Buddha mind or Buddha nature, uh, it's that thing which the person considers most sacred. Um, I don't get too hung up on definitions of what is God, because God can be so many different things. There's a big, uh, at least a big uh, superficial difference between uh, Buddha mind and Jesus and uh, Krishna and uh, uh, the God of Abraham and Joshua. So if we were all inclusive then, uh, if we include uh, or say the word thing, we would include the Aztec temples or the Inca um, Machu Picchu? Yeah, I mean... uh, uh, I don't. Uh, my attitude is inclusive rather than exclusive where this is concerned. I think that uh, what's really the best uh, testimony to religion is the fact that all religion, all cultures all over the world, for as long as we can tell, have um, paid attention to this sacred thing at the core of being. Why is that? I believe it's because um, I would quote my uh, esteemed uh, friend Harvey Cox, a theologian at Harvard uh, Divinity School, who says that, uh, who calls man the same way mankind is homo sapiens, mankind is also homo religiosus. I believe it's a a capacity that we have to detect um, this phenomenon, the same way we have a sense of smell or um, a sense of hearing. I believe that we are equipped to detect the sacred. Then how is the sacred detected? Um, I think the, the short answer is uh, sit down and shut up, and you'll detect it. That's the best route I know. Um, being quiet in the woods. Being quiet in the woods, being quiet on your... Zen cushion, being quiet in your pew in the church. Um, it's. Um, I don't think we have to uh, do a lot of um, sweating and grunting and groaning to get in touch with the divine. I think it's it's much more a matter of of calming down and quieting down and just just being with it. If we... I, I don't mean to sound unnecessarily mystical. I'm not. I'm I'm like a. a a wife and mom of five kids, and I have a busy, uh, a busy existence, and I do a lot of laundry and uh, a lot of uh, work for money, and I'm not, 
Uh, I'm not uh, a monk by any means, but I, I, I do start my days with 20 minutes of just, just sitting and shutting up. Sit still, shut up, and listen. Before you get up and engage with your family? Well, sometimes it's not possible. <laughs> sometimes you have to iron a shirt or something first. But uh, I do try, and, and it, I, I, think, I think there's a, a great deal to be said for, um, at least for me, I'm a creature of habit. I like to go to the gym at certain times. I like to have my meals at certain times. And I do like to um, try to get my quiet time um, in in the morning, and I think that's, a, that's generally a good thing to pick a time of day. Maybe it's the evening for you. Uh, and just, just kind of mark that off the way we mark off other parts of our days for different activities as your time to, to be quiet. If we're talking about uh, sacredness uh, and bring that to religion and spirituality, are you able to distinguish between religion and spirituality? Yeah, I think one of the commonest uh, creedal statements, if you will, um, that's made in the country today is, I'm spiritual, not religious. And what people mean usually when they say that is that they, they want the connection to the sacred, but they don't want the connection to the institutional. They don't want a bunch of creeds and doctrines and pledge forms and uh, service rosters to get in the way of this, their personal connection to the sacred. Um, the, the, what's re, the, re, the religious revolution that's going on in this country, uh, even though the, the much smaller one in the fundamentalist direction gets all the attention, the real religious revolution is the shift from uh, institutional religion to experiential religion. Talk about that. Tell us what you mean. Uh, I think most of us uh, well, <laughs> throughout history until quite recently, for most people, religion was something you inherited from your parents, uh, often along with your ethnicity. Uh, I was born uh, to an Irish Catholic family, and as far back as anybody in my family knows, everybody else was an Irish Catholic, too. So it wasn't really a matter of, um, gee, what is this little new baby girl Winifred going to be? She's going to be an Irish Catholic. Well, uh, because the world has changed so radically and ter turning ever more increasingly into a global village with information coming from all different directions and, and old social membranes being much more permeable, for the first time, religion is really a choice. And I mean, if you, if you wrap your mind around that for a minute, it's, it's an astounding, I think, development in, in human history. So that anybody who's interested in, you know, if, you're, if you were born... <coughs> um, a Jew or a Catholic or a Methodist or an African Methodist Episcopalian, you can go down to the bookstore and read all about Buddhism or Sufism or uh, Native American religion, and you can decide which um, ideas and experiential practices um, really speak to you. You're not just stuck with the thing you inherited, and I think this, this makes for an enormous amount of religious mobility. Winifred, you uh, recently wrote a book called Just the Way You Are, How Heredity and Experience Create the Individual. If we apply what you express in that book uh, to the concept that you can be the religion that you choose as opposed to the religion that uh, you receive from your parents, uh, how does that work? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, the uh just the Way is really a book about temperament, and temperament is, uh, short definition, is the more biological, inherited aspect of personality. And it's very interesting to me that 
uh, if you there are lots of different personality scales and different researchers have different ideas about how many basic traits there are. But the University of Minnesota researchers, who are very good, uh, have identified 11 basic personality traits, and, and combinations of those traits are kind of like a palette from which different personalities are painted, if you will. Um, some of the traits are much more environmentally influenced, and some of the traits are much more heritable. They're genetically influenced. Surprisingly, the most heritable trait, the one that you're likeliest to, to get from your parents' genes rather than the way they treat you, is traditionalism, which is the inclination to be to see the world in terms of black and white, right or wrong, go by the book. Uh, this is the kind of mentality that really lends itself um, temperamentally to fundamentalist-type religion. You know, here it says right here in the book, and that's it, end of discussion. So by um, just by sheer uh, genetics, a certain proportion of our population is going to be temperamentally shifted in the direction to be attracted to that kind of religion. That's the kind of religion that speaks to them, and that's fine. So in other words, if, if, I, may, hey, hmm? if, if I may, uh, the genetic um, trait of hair color or eye color is similar as to the makeup of a person's brain, as to what kind of religious thought they find more comfortable, traditionalism versus um, something else, transcendentalism, for it's instance? More behavioral traits are infinitely more complicated than something like hair or eye color, for sure. But it still stems from the same uh, situation. Yeah, sure, certainly. Um, and uh, at the other end of the spectrum, a less heritable trait called absorption uh, these are the kind of people who can lose themselves in their work. They tend to be very creative and imaginative. Uh, uh, they would also tend to be the mystical types of people. Uh, and these folks um, would not be very com comfortable with a fundamentalist religious approach. And uh, on the other hand, might be able to go on like really long Zen sessions and just be you know happy as larks. So there, we we are all different. And, you know, th that's part of the beauty of creation to me. There are lots of different types of people, and they need lots of different types of religion. Sometimes you can find within the same denomination, say Judaism or the Catholic Church or whatever, um, you'll find niches where, let's say, the contemplatives gather in a, in a monastic uh, kind of religion where the more... Um, Fundamentalists are out there telling people whether they're good or bad or right or wrong, and most people, of course, are somewhere in the middle between these two extremes. In general, Americans, our tradition is to be tolerant, to go by the golden rule, uh, and not to be real harsh and judgmental like these uh, right-wing preachers who get all the publicity are. Do you find that there is uh, a more likely age when people will turn to religion than not? You bet. <laughs> Tell us. It's interesting. Uh, there's also uh, there are a couple of age things going on in American religion. I, my understanding is that even way back in colonial times, since then, it's always been an American tradition to kind of drop out of religion between the late teens and, and the late 20s. This is a time when people, even those who have been brought up in very fervent homes, are often questioning and, and might drop out. And the parents are saying, oh, what do we do wrong? We dragged dra dra them to Sunday school, and now they don't, they're atheists. And... Um, a lot of these folks will start coming back. <laughs> we raised a normal kid. <laughs> right, yeah. You can congratulate yourself and say, this is a normal American kid. 
Um, and then they start coming back often around uh, when they have their own kids and they want to suddenly say, you know, the classic question, what should we do about the children? Uh, and the other great age, and I think this is true of myself as a baby boomer, Carl Jung um, said that the first 50 years of your life you spend kind of getting launched in life, and the next 50 years of your life you spend thinking, trying to figure out what it all meant. And I think that's really true. I think there's something around middle age, uh, especially my book is written for uh, educated, uh, middle-class, very skeptical people who um, have been turned off to religion because they think it's belief in the unbelievable, yet they have kind of these metaphysical feelings and urges and longings that they can't quite explain. And I think there's something about middle age when you've sort of been there and done that, you have the family, you have the job, you know, everything's kind of cooking along, and yet you still have this kind of little um, void inside. And I think this is why, bearing in mind that 75 million Americans are baby boomers, uh, this means that one-third of the population now is kind of going through this time of saying, so what's it all about? I like your comment about the... Um educated skeptics. Yeah. And I want to take a moment and tell our guests, uh, some of whom may be educated skeptics, that this week I'm talking with Winifred Gallagher. She wrote a book called Working on God that uh, places the concept of God in a new light, uh, particularly in the light of neo-agnostics, which we'll be talking about in just a moment. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Winifred, um, this concept of neo-agnostics uh, keeps coming up again and again in your book. Yeah. What is that? Well, I wanted to come up with some kind of a, a name for these people, because I think there are an awful lot of them, and I think that they're extremely influential, because they do tend to be uh, educated professional types um, who shape a lot of opinion, yet they're never acknowledged. About... about um, only about 5% of Americans are, are really convinced atheists or true classical agnostics, uh, who, and, and those agnostics are folks who say, um, there may be a God, there may not be a God, we can't know, and even if there is one, there's, nothing, there's no way we can connect with that thing. So what difference does it make? Well, they may, they may say that, or they may say, but I'm going to be good anyway because I'm an upright, moral, decent, ethical person. You know, it, it, I don't mean to make a value judgment about it. It's, just, it's a position, but it's a position that has involved um, some clear thinking and a decision. Neo-agnostics are a little different. They mm-hmm. are like agnostics in that they, they understand that there's no way you can you know, prove to some scientist that, that there is a god and they've been educated, and the American University is an extremely uh, skeptical, uh, secular institution that really doesn't want to touch these issues with a 10-foot pole. Perhaps um, as a result of the Supreme Court decisions on mixing God and schools, and it's drifted into the graduate schools. Well, or the embrace of the scientific worldview. Uh, in, the, in mid-20th century America, even religion said uh, that's the, the scientific ontology, the scientific uh, explanation of, of the way things are. Um, that's where the smart money is, and, and uh, which kind of implies religion is for dummies. If you say either science is right or religion is right, which is, which is the war that's been going on for 300 years since Isaac Newton and the Enlightenment, then one of them has to have the absolute truth. 
and scientists are the guys with all the cool machines and the white coats and, you know, the uh, investment capital. And it looks like science uh, has the answer because religion can't prove it. Well, one of the big seismic shifts that, that has happened in, in religion uh, in the past, um, in the recent past, is that um, science, particularly physics, is becoming much less uh, certain and absolute in its own answers. Events, uh, most notably the Holocaust, have certainly shed doubt about whether uh, the Enlightenment view of of man's innate, wonderful, good nature um, has kind of shot that full of holes, and, and we're seeing that today now that we're about to start bombing Eastern Europe. Yeah, starting a new war. Yeah, starting a new war. So it doesn't look like uh, science or philosophy necessarily have absolute eternal verities either. And what this has done that's good for religion is to move us more toward a situation that ex- has always existed in the East, where Science is in charge of its ontology, religion is in charge of its ontology, and philosophy looks after its ontology, and together they all contribute a part of the big picture so that people don't have to make a choice between religion and science or religion and philosophy. Um, It's wonderful because it it gets us out of this Punch and Judy show of religion is for dummies. So that would be an implication of uh, neo-agnosticism. It would be an implication of neo-agnosticism that people don't have to make such a, a specific choice. Well, I think it, it's one of the reasons, as a science reporter, why I felt it was intellectually respectable for me to become interested in religion rather than embarrassing. <laughs> My friends think it's pretty embarrassing. Um, I, why, why are your friends embarrassed? <clears throat> well, I think they're embarrassed for me because they thought I was smart. You know, I was a science reporter. And now I'm, um, um, uh, as one of them says, a holy Mary. <laughs> It's uh, it doesn't bother me. It's it's, but it, it it I think it shows something about I think a lot of intelligent, well-educated, professional people are embarrassed by the religious religious feelings. They don't quite know what to do with them. Let's talk about that for a minute. Yeah, that's what re- neo-agnostics really are. They're different from agnostics because neo-agnostics are in touch with these. You know, every once in a while they they see God. You know, in one way or another, whether it's a uh, uh, when they're staring at the night sky or they're listening to music or they just they feel they're not completely uh, cut off from their sense of the sacred. So they have the skepticism on the one hand and they have these these impulses and experiences on the other hand and they're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place because they don't think there's anything out there religiously that they can um, uh, used to help them explore the sacred stuff without compromising the intellectual stuff. And this is really what my whole book is about. It's about how one such person um, went on this very quirky, complicated path and ended up with a, um, a really wonderful religious life that astounds me that uh, if someone had told me that I, I would end up that way three years ago. Now that you've ended up that way, and now that you're astounded, what are your thoughts when you look back? Um, I guess since I started doing Zazen, I don't look back as much. Uh, but certainly when I, started the, when I started the book, I expected that I would, um, I would report religion the way I reported psychiatry or neuroscience. I would, I would do all the research, and there's lots of religious research, and I'd talk to the experts, and I'd do some interviews, and then I'd say, here, folks, this is what it's like out there. You know, I would be the invisible reporter. But what happened pretty soon after I started uh, 
the work, I would say within a couple months, I said, gee, this is kind of interesting. I think I'll start um, doing it at home. And uh, I didn't want to touch Christianity with a 10-foot pole because I was, um, I was born into uh, Christian tradition, and I, I thought that was a real turnoff. And Judaism was associated with Christianity in my mind. So I figured, I'll, I'll pick Buddhism. That's really aesthetically very pleasing. It doesn't look like you have to believe a lot of stuff. The robes are cool, you know. Um, and How I, old were you when you made that choice? Uh, let me see. I was about 48, I guess, when I started. Okay. Uh, and I just started sitting at home. Um, and I noticed that after I'd been doing it for a couple of weeks, I really felt different. Uh, and I was having experiences that I identified as being very profound, but I wasn't having to believe anything. I didn't have to sign on the dotted line. I didn't have to join a group. Tell us what you were doing that made the difference. Um, well, have you ever meditated? Well, I like to think so. Yeah, well... If but explain that process for uh, someone who's listening who maybe hasn't or who has meditated in Oh, you mean in literally a, what I was doing? Yes, in a, who, someone who may have meditated in a, a different fashion than right. what you'll tell us. Well, the, the nice thing, I think, if someone is interested in, in meditation, it's a, it's a really good idea to get a teacher because it's a real technology. It's, it's, the analogy I use in the book, actually, for spiritual practice uh, of this kind is, is going to the gym. It's a lot like... Uh, learning to play a sport or working out. You don't just go to the gym and jump on the machines and try to figure out how to use them yourself. Uh, some nice person in your neighborhood will teach you in 10 minutes how to meditate. Um, and Zazen require, uh, usually requires uh, sitting in a, in a certain posture and paying attention to your breath and just uh, letting, letting intrusive thoughts go uh, and just sitting quietly for that 20 minutes. Uh, and if you do that... Uh, you will you will experience uh, something that you don't normally experience because you're so caught up in uh, the static and the stuff and the noise and the music of everyday life. Kind of like uh, sitting there and uh, let the intrusive thoughts go, but if they come back, it's okay. Don't feel bad. Oh yeah, I'm not, believe me, I'm a, I'm a I'm a poor <laughs> I'm a poor mystic. Uh, often a lot of my um, my uh, Zazen efforts, it seems like I spend 20 minutes sitting there getting rid of thoughts. Um, I think even it's, one, it's a win-win situation because simply, simply slowing down and reducing the number of, of what Buddhists call monkey thoughts is an enormously um, effective experience. Winifred, I want to ask you about the millennium. Uh, that's something that uh, a small percentage of the world's population acknowledge. Right. Um, but it's such a major force. Is that because our country thinks it's important and we have the Y2K um, theories? I think it's probably just a, a commercial device or it's something that the media can, can grab onto and say, wow, here's a reason. It's kind of like Monica Gate or something where, oh, we can make a thing of this. You know, uh, I have never really understood the big fuss over New Year's Eve. I, I don't like New Year's Eve myself, but you notice every year there's a, a, a huge fuss about it. And TV shows and newspaper articles and what are you doing this New Year's Eve? I, I think a lot of it is just is just hype. I think um, for Christians it marks um, sort of inaccurately uh, 2,000 years of of Christianity. 
So maybe there are people for whom that is, um, you know, are really an imp- uh, obviously for the Pope who makes a big deal of it. Uh, it's it's a very important anniversary. So I think um, the millennium idea to me it's an opportunity. If it if it doesn't speak to you, um, forget it. If if it's uh, if if like Christmas or Passover or Buddha's birthday, it's it's a way to help you celebrate some some culture or some ethos that has meaning and value to you, then I think it's a nice opportunity. Winifred, there's one more question that's a big one, and we don't have too much time left, but that is, why do you think that so many of the world's religions have put women in a second place, a place of non-leadership? Well, simply because uh, religion is just a human institution, and all human institutions have done that. Um, Religion is not different. Uh, it is different now than it ever was before in a really spectacular sense because not only are women functioning as clergy persons, uh, but they are also um, filling positions in more than more than half of the positions in major theological seminaries. So women are going to do a lot more uh, establishing of the intellectual agendas of the religions, which I think is a potentially interesting area. So then we can expect some significant changes perhaps in the next uh, 25, 50 years. Uh, it re- really remains to be seen. You, um, I'm a woman, and I'm like rah-rah for women, but I, I have to say uh, people expected uh, in the women's suffrage movement that when women got the vote, there'd be no more war, and it would be a more perfect, more just society, and I can't say that we can pat ourselves on the back for that yet, sister. So um, I don't want to be overly rah-rah about it, but I, certainly that would be my hope, sure. Make it better, Absolutely. Well, Winifred Gallagher, I want to thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like to ask you the question I ask all of my guests. And that is, could you tell us of an interesting book that you've read lately? Yeah. Um, even though my religious, um, my, my own entry back into religion happened through Zen, uh, it kind of handed me on from Zen to Judaism. And I continue to study Judaism in a Hebrew uh, seminary. Uh, and, and Judaism handed me on back, much to my surprise, to Christianity, so that I, I do belong to an Episcopal church now. And I'll celebrate Easter this year. And I would like to recommend, because I know there's so many wounded Christians, as Easton Smith calls them, out there, um, even if Christianity sends chills down your spine of loathing, um, I think there's a book by Marcus Borg, uh, who's one of the historical Jesus scholars called Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time. And it's a very heal it's short. It, he's very attuned to a kind of a Buddhist sensibility and it will make you feel better about this person who has a lot has had so much to do with Western culture, even if you don't want to uh, pursue Christianity religiously. So I can I can heartily recommend it. it's a lovely book uh, and a healing book. Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time yes. by Marcus Borg. Yes. B O R G. Winifred Gallagher, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. Winifred Gallagher is the author of Working on God. The book that she recommends is Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time by Marcus Borg. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org 
There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.